As you're being seated, find John 21. It is great to be here today. I'm excited to be here to uh, worship with everyone and preach the word and thankful that Jason filled in last week and preached a great sermon to us. And we are, Lord willing, this week and next week, and we'll be completed the, the gospel according to John. So um, it's been a crazy journey, a, a good journey, and I pray that we'll just kind of take what we can out of these last, this last chapter. Um, so, have you ever just wondered how you got here? Um, oh, I don't mean here like this morning. You know how you got here this morning. But I mean in life, have you ever looked back and wondered like, how did all these things work out? Like, how did I meet and marry this person? How did I end up with this job, this career, live in this town, go to this church, um, all these things we can look back and kind of see, like, wow, we can see how God worked things together in those situations. But I hope you also can look back and say, wow, I can see how God has worked in my life, not just with the things of the world or, you know, those th things, but my spiritual walk. How he has taken me through some valleys to teach me some things. And how he's also given me some mountaintop experiences to worship and, and, and have that sweet fellowship with him. And so, as we think back on how God has directed us, um, I want you to see how these disciples might have felt. These disciples, in the first century, changed the world. We're just a few chapters away over in the book of Acts from when they will change the world. So much so that in Acts 17, some of the disciples come into town, and the people of the town say, Here come those men. And I'm paraphrasing, but here come those men who have turned our world upside down. That's how much impact the disciples and the people they discipled had in the world. That when they came to town, people were like, oh, here they come. They're preaching that gospel, that good news, but it, it upset the status quo. And, and they said they have turned the world upside down. And so as I look at these disciples post-resurrection of Christ, I think these meetings, these times when Christ revealed himself to them, certainly played a huge part in what they would become and what they would do. And I wonder if over in Acts, these disciples thought back and said, remember when Jesus showed up that night we were out there fishing, that morning we were out there fishing? He showed up and taught us some things. I bet they remembered that, and I bet that fueled them to continue to follow him. Well, let's look at chapter 21. As we think about how this affects the disciples and how it affects us, we're going to read the first 14 verses. If you found verse 1, say word. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise, he showed himself. Is this the first time he has showed himself to the disciples? No, multiple times, right? Verse 2, there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus. Remember him from last week? Doubting Thomas, or as we named him last week, Skeptical Thomas. And Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, 
and the sons of Zebedee, what are their names? James and John, and two other of his disciples. So seven disciples are together here. Two we don't know by name, the others we, we do. Verse 3, Simon Peter saith unto them, and I like how the King James says it here, I go a-fishing. <laughs> I remember reading this years ago, and one time I called my dad, I was like, hey, I go a-fishing. You go a-fishing? <laughs> Let's go together. I go a-fishing. So Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Is that natural? What was, his, what was his job? He was a fisherman, right? They say unto him, we also go a-fishing. We also go with thee. So they went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. These are guys who know how to fish, by the way, and they catch nothing. Even the best fishermen sometimes have bad days. But this, of course, was for a purpose. Verse 4. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. They fished all night. They caught nothing. They're getting closer back to the shore. They look over there. They see a man. They don't know who it is. Then saith Jesus unto them, Children, have you any meat? In other words, did you catch anything? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. Again, they still don't know at this point who this is, but they take his advice. They'd had such a bad night, they were like, We'll try anything at this point. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw the net for the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, the writer of this gospel, John said unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and we don't know if he was completely naked or probably just close to that way, and that's the way they fished. He put on his coat, which usually you would take off a coat to jump in the water, but he put on his coat, and he cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land. But as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty-three. By the way, let's stop there for a second. That's an interesting number in that people have tried to account for why 153. And there's all these crazy theories out there. And I want to say this. I think many times people go too far with biblical numbers. When I was in Bible college, this guy came to our college to teach our chapel service and was basically telling us how every single number in the Bible had a special meaning. And back then, I didn't know anything, but I knew this guy was crazy. I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I get three for Trinity. I get that, but it was just some wild stuff. And so there are different theories on this 153. I propose they're like me when I go fishing. I put the fish in the ice chest, and I like to count them and see how many I have. So, I don't know, they counted. And plus, what a huge catch of fish. The net was full, so let's count them. Well, it says, in, after it says 153 fish, for all, for all, there were so many, yet was not the net broken. 
Jesus said unto them, Come and dine. Come and eat. James Boyce commented on this verse as we stop here. He said, In John 1, Jesus said, Come and see. In Matthew 11, Come and learn. Mark 6, Come and rest. Matthew 25, Come and inherit. And here Jesus says, Come and dine. Jesus often invited his disciples to come and be provided for by him. By the way, this morning, Christ invites us to come and be provided for, whether it's encouragement, comfort, conviction, grace, challenge. We're invited even now, during the sermon, to receive from Christ. By the way, I hope that's why you're here. You should be here to receive something from Christ, from His Word. That's the main reason we should be here. I pray that happens. So in verse, verse 12, He said, Come and dine. None of the disciples dare to ask Him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. Jesus provides for his people, provides for them here. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So that's a walk through this chapter. And this chapter is a, it's, it's narrative in nature, right? Um, I sometimes miss our study in Romans or going through Ephesians or something like that when every verse is different points. Like I read Titus. You could take that chapter, Titus 2, and dive through and, and um, pull out these different points. Well, this narrative sometimes becomes more difficult to pull out points for us to necessarily apply, but we know they are there. And I'll say this, too, that I think the reason John even gives us chapter 21 is because of what happens next week. Because next week, in the latter part of the chapter, we're going to see Simon Peter be restored, who had denied Christ three times. And I think that's why we have chapter 21, honestly. But, but let's take this chapter, let's take this portion of the chapter, and I want to give you four kinds of people that God uses to further His kingdom. Four types of people that God uses to further His kingdom. And I think you're going to see it through these disciples, I know we will, as we kind of draw out these, these thoughts. The first one I want you to notice is this. God uses ordinary people to further his kingdom, to work in his kingdom, to preach his gospel, to proclaim his name. Ordinary people. John MacArthur wrote a book years ago called 12 Ordinary Men. I recommend it. It's a good book. He just goes through each disciple and kind of describes them and gives us what the Bible says about them, and then what some of the history says about them. And one thing you notice as you study the disciples, and you know this just from your own study of them, they were ordinary guys. Fishermen, tax collectors, I mean, just guys. And they were not well known. As a matter of fact, if you lived in Jesus' day, and you went out to pick the cream of the crop to be your disciples, those are probably not the guys you and I would, chose, would choose which is exactly why Jesus chose them. They were not the most famous, the most spiritual, the most wealthy. They were not the most anything. As people will say nowadays, they were just basic. Or as kids say, they were mid. Average, basic, middle-of-the-road guys. And yet, Christ called them and used them to change the world. If you ever wondered, what if Pilate, when Jesus was there meeting with Pilate, a couple chapters before this, 
What if Pilate would have became a Christian and said, you know what, I'm not crucifying this guy. He's the Savior. We're going to all follow him. What if Pilate would have become a Christian? What if Herod would have become a Christian? What if Caesar would have become a Christian? Why didn't God choose those famous, wealthy, well-known, intellectual? Why did not God choose those people? Well, as Scripture says in several different ways, God sometimes uses the foolish things of the world or the poor of the world or children to accomplish His purpose. Years ago, it's probably been 15 years ago or 20, I was at a meeting, a church meeting, and a preacher made the point about Oprah Winfrey, which some of y'all, most of y'all know who Oprah is, famous talk show, and I don't know if she still has a show, I don't care, but back then, of course, she was famous, right? I mean, everybody knew her, many people sit at home and listened to her, watched her show, and a preacher said at this meeting, if only Oprah would become a Christian, then she could put that out there on TV, and everybody would be, all those people that listen would become a Christian. And as he said that, I was like, I don't know about that. But I remember, I was thinking, what if Michael Jordan became a Christian? Because I'm thinking sports, right? Could he lead people to Christ? And yeah, I'm sure they could. But what I want you to see this is this. When Jesus planned to start his church, he chose the simple, ordinary people so that there would be no mistaking that it was God doing the work. Look at this quote by Ryle. He said, Nothing can account for the rise and progress of Christianity but the direct interposition of God. In other words, disciples are the ordinary in the church, and Christ is the extraordinary in the church. And that's how, by the way, we need to be as a church. That it doesn't matter if we have the most famous people in Lowndes County in our church or the most well-off people in Lowndes County in our church. What matters is that we are ordinary men and women of Christ and God works extraordinarily through us, through His grace and His Spirit. I talked to someone this week who said, I just need to get my life together, then I can serve Christ. I talked to someone else recently, a while back, who said, I just don't have any special talents to use to serve God. Listen, if you think you have to get your life together, if you think you have to have special talents, then you definitely have not read the Bible. Because even the greatest heroes of the faith had issues. Noah had issues. Moses had issues. King David had issues. The Apostle Paul had issues. Simon Peter had issues. We all have issues. But God... As we see in Christ choosing these men, God is able to save and use regular people just like us to accomplish His will. And most often that's what God does so that when His kingdom is furthered, He gets all the glory and not us. The second type of person that God uses to further His kingdom, and we see this in this chapter as well, God uses different people or different kinds of people to further his kingdom. Now, remember when Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples, hey, Jesus is not there. The body's not in the tomb. Remember those two disciples who ran to the tomb? Who were those two disciples? Peter and John, the same two we're talking about in this chapter. And remember who was the fastest to get to the tomb? Remember who it was? It was John, because he wrote in his book, I beat him, <laughs> I ran Peter. In today's chapter, if you look back at it, 
Who was the first one to Jesus in chapter 21? Peter's like, I'm not getting beat this time. He jumps in the water and swims toward, toward Christ. But I see that these guys are different in their attitudes. They're different in their personalities. In many ways, they were different in their, I'm sure, in parts of their upbringing. And again, if you study the disciples, you'll see those things more clearly. But I want you to see the point. When it comes to us and our church and being a part of God's people, we are so different. And what Nick said to me a while back, is, is I can't get it out of my head, when he said, we're so different, but the thing that unites a lot of us in this church is we've had some bad experiences in past churches, and we're united around the fact that we want to make it work in Christ. And so I want to just highlight that fact that we have... So many of us have such different religious and just personal backgrounds. Me and Jason have very different religious backgrounds that crazily led us to such a similar point of beliefs and things. It's unreal. But our background is totally different. He tells me some stuff, I'm like, that's crazy. Y'all do what? You know? And he would say the same about me, you know. But we all, and that goes for all of us, we all have some different things that we we come up through with different levels of education, for better or worse, different level of, of personal life. Some of you have lived in other states and countries. Um, we even have different, of course, different preferences on things. I know some people like, wish we had a piano player. I do too. Wish we, had, wish we did this song or that song. We have different preferences. Wish we had a smaller pulpit, a bigger pulpit. I love the pulpit. We have all these preferences that are different. I wish this or that. We have different beliefs on things. But I want you to see that just as these disciples work together through their differences, so must we, right? And we must embrace the things, and I, I think they certainly did this, embrace the things that we believe. Embrace those as our uniting factor, as families and as a church. Let me give you some examples. We believe that the Bible is God's Word. It's a big version here. We believe it's God's Word. It's inspired. We believe it is the authority for all faith, life, and practice. We hold to it. We believe there's one God, right? The God of the Bible is the one true God. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal, Trinity, the Godhead, we call it. We believe that Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, never once sinning, and then willingly laying down his life for sinners like us. We believe he was buried. We believe he rose again on the third day. We believe he appeared to these disciples multiple times, according to Scripture, as well as appearing to others. We believe he ascended to heaven after commissioning them where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us, and he will one day, we believe, return to judge all people, right? And set up his eternal kingdom, where all those who are in him will live with him forever. And all those who are his enemies will be cast into a lake of fire. We believe these things. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We believe the church is the, are the people of God. 
who are chosen, called, and commissioned to meet together, to be equipped. We're equipped to serve Him, and then we scatter to make disciples. We gather to be equipped, we scatter to make disciples. These are things we believe, these are things we declare week after week, and for that purpose, right, Nick, no matter how different our upbringings might have been, our backgrounds might have been, no matter how different some of our preferences might be, we're united around those things I just said. By the way, if you don't, or you don't agree with those things I just said, you really should not like our church. <laughs> those are things we try to preach pretty regularly. A few years ago, Jesse and I went to a game in New Orleans, a football game. New Orleans Saints, been a lifelong fan, never been to a game there. And we took a trip, and we bought seats kind of behind the end zone, pretty decent seats. We walked around the city, and some of y'all have been there before. It's kind of crazy. I'm like, we may get shot here. I don't know what's going to happen. We make it safely into the stadium. We sit down, and this young, younger black man sits beside me. And I'm like, how you doing? You know, I was cordial. How you doing? He's like, how you doing? Yeah. We didn't really, I didn't know his name. We didn't really talk much. And, I was, and I'm thinking back, we were so different, right? There's no telling what job he had. There's no telling what life he, experiences he had growing up there, I'm assuming there in New Orleans. We were so different in every single way. But we both had on a Saints jersey. And for three hours, we stood up, high-fived, bumped shoulders, said who dat real loud, cheered for the Saints, saw Drew Brees break Peyton Manning's record. I was, at some point, I think I was hugging the guy, you know. <laughs> and we're drinking different beverages. We, we, we smoked different beverage, different things. <laughs> but for three hours, for three hours, that jersey and the team we represented united us. Even though I promise when we left that stadium, we both went totally different directions in life, <laughs> I, I feel like. That's my point, right? In many ways, we're different. Although I would argue we're more similar than me and him. But we have the same jersey, don't we? It's Christ. We're clothed in him, Scripture says. We have the same jersey. We're on the same team. We have the same mission. And these disciples were able to change the world because they listened to Christ and they celebrated him, the uniting factor. If you can't be united by Christ with other fellow believers who are different than you, then heaven is not somewhere you want to be. There's going to be some different people there who love Christ. Number three. This was actually the last point I, I kind of found as I kind of just studied through this. But notice that God uses active people to further his kingdom. Now we believe, something else we believe, is that God is sovereign over all things, and we preach that here, we, we proclaim that, we discuss that, we believe it. God is in control, right? But we also say that God has a means to accomplish His end. And more often than not, the means that God uses to accomplish His goals in this world are His people. Someone said the church is God's plan A, there is no plan B. God uses His people to accomplish His purpose. And so we can only accomplish those purposes as we remain active. And so, back to our chapter, John 21. 
or the previous chapter. The disciples were meeting together in a locked room. Scared of the Jews, scared they're going to be arrested or whatever, but they are together. In Acts chapter 1, after these meetings with Christ, in Acts 1, they are together. And it says in Acts 1, they're together and they're praying together. Not just being together, not just sitting there, not just worried, but in Acts 1, after having met with Jesus in these post-resurrection appearances, they are praying. I believe what a prayer meeting that had to be, to hear them pray. They're praying we, they, we're going to see in, in Acts chapter 2, they begin to preach with power so that thousands of people come to know Christ as the Holy Spirit begins to work there. Then they, they go, they go forward and they begin in Acts 2.42 to meet day after day to worship, to have the breaking of bread, to pray, to follow the apostles' doctrine, as Acts 2.42 says. And they, they don't just stay in a holy huddle, but they spread out, they scatter and take God's word as they preach and make disciples. These men who, again, who were locked in John 20, locked in a room, scared, a few chapters over in Acts, are preaching in the face of persecution. You see, church, God is sovereign over all things. I will believe that until the day I die. And I mean everything. The best things that happen to us and even the worst things that happen to us. God is sovereign. As a matter of fact, that's when I think you really begin to understand it when you go through rough times. I'll always believe that, but I'll also always believe this. He uses us, and we must be active to serve Him. I was at a church one time, probably had, I was trying to think, 15 or 16 deacons in the church, and some of those guys, didn't even go, some of those guys never showed up at all, but a lot of those guys were good, godly men who served, served Christ, and what they did was they had seven active deacons at a time. And so you'd be active for two or three years, and then you'd rotate off, and you'd be inactive. And I remember talking to some of these guys. They were like, Phew, I'm so happy to be off the active deacon board. Now I can actually serve Christ. Because <laughs> the active deacons had all these meetings. They had to put out the fires in the church and deal with stuff that was, ugh. And, but I remember that, to me that was such a funny concept. You're an inactive servant of Christ? Like That's, that's, a fun, that's like saying, and we do say this, by the way, they're an inactive church member. I mean, should that really be a thing? I mean, unless you're homebound in some way, but even then you can still be active. We have members here who have been members here who can't always make it in person because of physical ailments, but still pray and encourage and give to the church. So they're active. But for us who are healthy and able to be here as much as possible, there's no excuse for us to be an inactive Christian or an inactive church member. Because every one of us in this room can attend, can pray, can give, can encourage, can serve, we can witness, we can love, we can contribute. What would Simon Peter say if one of the disciples walked up and said, I'm just going to take a couple years off, I'm going to be an inactive disciple. What do you think Simon Peter might have said? I mean... He might have cussed the guy. I don't know. Like, I mean, that would be unheard of, right? The Apostle Paul would be writing us a letter. There, you can't be inactive. And that's a great, again, I'm preaching this to myself as well this morning. I hope you don't think it's just me preaching to you. It's to myself. We cannot be an inactive church. There are, those, are, those are out there. We can't be inactive. 
We need to be actively engaged, intentionally engaged in Christian duty. And we always discuss what those duties are. But God is more likely to use us as we are actively, intentionally engaged in Christian duty. Finally, number four. And this is the most important one. You can be ordinary, you can be different, and you can be active, but it doesn't matter if you've never been changed by God. This is the most important one. And I don't mean that you're just convinced that God is real or something like that, or you're convinced Christ is a Savior. I mean that you are changed. You've been born again, born of the Spirit, regenerated, redeemed, whatever you want to say, saved. Without this changing in your heart by Christ, you cannot be used of God to further His kingdom. Not in a a real way. Three things about this. First, and this happened to these disciples, and it happens to us, we must be changed by the atonement of Christ. When we say atonement, I simply mean here that He died for us in our place. Isaiah 53, by His stripes we are healed. By His wounds we are healed. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Titus chapter 2, we read it this morning. He died that he might redeem us. That he might do that for us. You cannot be changed. You cannot become a Christian. You cannot serve God until you have received Christ and that atoning sacrifice he made for you. The second thing that happened to these disciples and to us is we must see and be changed by the reality of the resurrection. In Romans chapter 10, it talks about this, that we must believe Christ died and that he rose again. That is a major part, right? Because the resurrection of Christ shows us his power, who he really is, and it shows us our victory. In these post-resurrection appearances of Christ to the disciples, when he said, hey, throw your net on the side and watch what happened. They caught all these fish. Christ is showing them his power and showing him the reality of the resurrection, that I truly rose from the grave and you can have that same power and victory. The third one, we need to be changed by the regeneration of the Spirit. And here I'm referring to just that new life that we receive in him. The disciples did not change the world because they started a religious fad or because they found some emotional revival movement, or anything like that. There was not a momentary emotional movement that the disciples jumped into. These men were changed by Christ in such a way that history tells us all but this John preached until their death and became martyrs. And John was, of course, persecuted as well. You see, the change that God brings in our lives does not allow us to just sit still and do nothing for Christ. When God changes us and saves us, He intends to use us for His purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we quote these verses a lot. For by grace have you been saved through faith. Uh, This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man may boast. We proclaim that verse, don't we? Saved by grace through faith, not by works. But Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that God, who has saved us, has good works prepared for us to do, that he prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in and do. So every one of us individually, as families, as a church, we have works that God wants us to do once we have been changed. Finally, I want to just share the gospel here. which I think we've already shared it a little bit, but I was reading, um, some of us were talking about Martin Luther this morning. I was reading that old Luther quote where he kept getting up every Sunday and preaching the gospel. And somebody at his church said, when are you going to, they said, when are you going to stop preaching the gospel to us every week? He said, I'm going to preach it to you every day because you forget it every day. That's pretty good. I'm going to preach it to you every day because you forget it every day. I think it was Spurgeon who said, I'll stop preaching it when you get it. But even us who are believers need to hear the gospel. So, if you've heard this four outline, four prong outline of the gospel, first it starts with God. Eternal God, always in existence, in perfect fellowship within the Trinity, needing nothing, holy, set apart, decided to create man. Right? Created Adam, put him in the garden. In very short order, Adam sinned against God, his holy creator. He disobeyed God's word. He chose to eat of the fruit. He cast himself and us into utter corruption and sin. And because of Adam's sin, who is our first father, we're all born with that sin nature. And as all of us who have kids know, shortly after being born, we start doing sinful stuff, disobeying just our attitude, our life. And so, God holy and perfect, man sinful, deserving of God's punishment, God's wrath, eternal hell and condemnation. But then we look at the third part of the prong here, the third prong. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God sent His Son to die for us, to rise again. Number four, that if we believe in Him, to repent, to turn of our sins, to believe in Christ, to confess Jesus as Lord and follow Him, that is our response to the gospel. God saves sinners through Christ. And so, I want us all, and I think, again, we can take this from following the lives of these disciples, I want us all to be used of God with however many days, months, years we have left in this life, that our life would be poured out as these disciples were, to be used by Him. And to understand, even if we're ordinary, we can be used. Even if we're different, we can be used. But we must be active, and most importantly, we must be born again. And so if anybody hears this now or at some point, and you don't know Christ, turn to Christ. He is the only one who can save you from your sin, grant you eternal life, and take away that condemnation that we deserve. We sang about it earlier, how deep the Father's love for us. I hope you'll think about that. I know some people in our church have had some stressful weeks. Well, church, God loves us. We are His people. He loves you. If you don't know Him, He loves you and wants you to be saved, wants you to turn to Him. And if He is working in you and you're thinking on these things, Number one, pray about it right now. And number two, please speak with me after if you, if you need any kind of counseling. Let's pray.